Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Otok. I am Boyan Fierst. My guest today is Dr. Lori Brinklop. Lori is a poet, singer, and traffic traveler and the linchpin of the University of Prince Edward Island's Institute of Island Studies with their internationally renowned Masters of Island Studies program. The song you are listening to is Margie Carmichael's Red Dirt Road, Lori's first pick for this episode and Prince Edward Island's unofficial anthem. Riding to the Cayleys, dropping in on the neighbor's church on Sunday too Never made a stranger or the fella next door like these times tend to do The doctor came by, if anyone was sick and half the time he never got a cent Oh yeah, the red dirt road made neighbors of us all, we were all content On the red dirt road, the red dirt road on the red dirt road Then the auto was invented The horses were tormented And everybody started giving in Soon a lot of them were driving Fancy little rigs And they were sporting their expensive little grins They widened all the ruts They raised a lot of dust And it settled on the wagon and the sleigh And when the red dirt road Wasn't coping with the load They paved in Oh, I grew up on a red dirt road My feet got tough on a red dirt road I fell in love on a red dirt road On a red dirt road My your toe A red dirt road Take Prince Edward Island is a ridiculously picturesque island on Canada's Atlantic coast probably best known internationally as the home of Anne of Green Gables. In this episode, Lori and I talked about her favorite subject, art and islands. Her research on Tasmania and Newfoundland looked at how islanders and islands show up in artistic works produced in those places. Before we dove into the art conversation, I asked her about COVID-19 pandemic on Prince Edward Island. Oh, PEI is fantastic. Um, we are so lucky to be on an island during this pandemic. You wouldn't believe it. I, um, we've had 27 cases, no hospitalizations, no deaths. Everybody's recovered. And they're just now, on June 1st, going to start the process of allowing summer residents to come. Apparently, we have 3,500 non, um, you know, those people who have summer homes here, 2,300 of whom are from Canada. So, I mean, this is households, not just people. And uh, so it's a bit of a controversy, you know, should we let them in? Should we not? But our summer residents offer so much to our community and um, we need them. (laughs) Our small businesses need them as long as they follow the protocols and stay home for two weeks, they isolate, have a good plan in place and yeah, make sure that they're healthy. Then I think we'll be all right. But this Island is going to be so different this summer, just like yours. No tourism. No, there's nothing going to be nothing to do. It'll be like the olden days. <laughs> and I'm so excited. Just, you know, don't have to worry about, you know, going to a concert or a play or who I'm going to miss out on. I'm just going to the beach, man. <laughs> so. It is 
I'm thinking that this summer is going to feel really different here. All of the things that we sort of keep time by, folk festival, regatta, you know, George Street Festival, time to go out to the outports, none of that's going to happen this year. How's Lori Brinkla doing? Lori Brinkla is doing really well. <laughs> I've been working so hard. It's almost through the Institute of Island Studies, UNESCO chair, my teaching, um, my islandness class coming to an end at, you know, at the end of April. Through all of this pandemic, it feels like I've been working harder than ever. And working, I love working at home. I've been um, such a traveler before I missed being at home because I was always away. And so I've, I'm just relishing being at home. But it is also really different working from home. And you're you're busier than ever, but less productive. And uh, by the end of the day, three o'clock yesterday, my eyes were just burning. So I had to step away from the computer. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, things are going pretty well. Yeah, it's interesting. Several people I talked to mentioned that it's very tiring working yeah. from home. It just feels very different. Yeah. I also, um, I'm in a writing group and for the first few weeks, every second Saturday, we met to write online. And after doing it three times, I said, you know what? I've been on the computer too much. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so, so my creativity in the way of writing, you know, the great Canadian poetry manuscript or whatever hasn't uh, really uh, materialized, um, but I've been doing a puzzle. I've got a puzzle going <laughs> and watching a lot of Netflix and uh, gardening and uh, working a lot. Yeah. On our Island studies stuff. So yeah. Tell me about that islandness course you're teaching. Oh my goodness. My islandness course this year was so great. I had four students, which um, the most students I've ever had in that class, I think was eight or nine. And this is a master of arts and Island studies program. So they're seminars, they're small. I am so grateful and so fortunate to have um, be working with these top students who are there that want to be there and want to engage with thinking about and thinking with islands. And uh, so generally I have them read, you know, 20 or 30 articles and we do the seminar thing. They have to do some assignments. My favorite assignment to give them is a walk on the edge. In January, they have to go out and walk on the edge and write about it and take photos and really engage with it. And to a person, they always come back saying, wow, that was amazing. And just, you know, that feeling of being on the edge where they have to, you know, everything just goes away. And that's what happens, right? That's the magical thing about being at the water, even if it's frozen in the winter and they're freezing cold. <laughs> but anyway, this year, um, and they also have to write essays and stuff like that. But this year, I only had four. So I knew that at least three of them were poets. And the fourth one um, very creative as well. So we decided to do more of an experiential learning experience and they wrote poetry. They published, well, we haven't printed it yet, but they've created a little chapbook of their own poetry, 16 or 20 pages. They had to do um, write stuff for a, an online um, journal. And because of COVID-19, they weren't able to work together as well. So I've just posted all of their material on our our. Um, master's uh, website at UPEI so I'll post the link but 
it, they were they engaged and there are conversations we had to do some readings of course to engage with the literature about islandness like john gillis and pete hay and all of those really fantastic writers who were are writing and thinking about with islands but they engaged through their own writing you know they wrote their material they um and Sarah, the, the fourth student who didn't write a poetry manuscript per se, she did a video um, project based on entrepreneurship with her father um, and who is starting up a social enterprise in Cavendish. And it's um, sort of like a, a training center. And uh, even she wrote poetry. And But they all engaged with their own material in thinking about the concepts of islandness. Forget about Pete Hay. Forget about John Gillis. They were doing it themselves and, and critiquing and going deep into their own stuff. And I thought that was a really powerful thing. And I'm so proud of how they, how, how it all turned out. I can I can see how you would teach that kind of a class, given your own research in the way that artists engage with islands. So maybe that's what we can chat about next. You did your research on in Newfoundland and then in Tasmania, which is really interesting because they're almost antipodes, almost exactly on the opposite ends of the Earth. You Tell stuck a knitting needle through the globe and pointed it, you know, put it through Hobart and then straight through and come out in St. John's. It, it really does. does. Try it. <laughs> Will do. Okay. <laughs> what was, uh, let's start with Tasmania because I know Newfoundland pretty well. What was Tasmania like? I was mesmerized by Tasmania. I went there first. I had been to Newfoundland several times over the years, but my big trip, you know, it was 10 months in Tasmania and I uh, went there and the countryside, the landscape is so different from Prince Edward Island, Prince Edward Island, the bucolic rolling hills, pastoral agriculture, all of that. There it's rugged. There's a mountain right on the edge of the city and you're the mountains here, the city's down here, and then there's the water, right? And it's just like this huge blot on the landscape and you become to, to recognize it, right? And when you've been there long enough, um, the people I found so similar to, to home and uh, felt immediately at home. Um, Edward Ralph, the geographer from University of Toronto, um, calls it in, um, existential insideness or empathetic insideness or behavioral insideness. It's all gradations of being inside. I started out, you know, recognizing the place that's the behavioral and then came to really empathize with the people and feel and almost to the point of saying, OK, this is home. It's existential insideness. I can just be here and relax and feel so at home. And I got to that point where I um, I loved it. So it was the people. It was the landscape. They, they called it the pain and the beauty of Tasmania. And um, this that absolute pain that comes with the, the convict stain because of all of the um, people that most of uh, Tasmania was settled by convicts or the people who oversaw the convicts and the stories uh, are horrific as to what happened during the 17, 1800s, mostly 1800s when they were shipped to Australia as convicts, maybe for stealing a loaf of bread. And then when they were shipped from England and Ireland and Scotland, and then the worst of the worst were sent to Tasmania. And then the worst of the worst of the worst were sent to the islands off the island, like Sarah Island. And, and it was just, the, the stories are, are terrible. And so that's where the pain comes in. And, but the beauty is so poignant and sharp and, and um, 
people are very, very attached to their home in Tasmania, similar to the way we are, right? It's, it's amazing how these places um, became become imprinted on our, our psyches. And it's really interesting from the little bit we chatted about your research when you were here. I loved the parallels between how the art community in Tasmania engages with their island because it seemed so much like Newfoundland. Can you tell me about sort of what you found out? My, um, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do my PhD on, I went for a walk on the beach. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing like walking on the edge where things become really clear and seeing the bottom of the, the sand underneath the water and how it just clarifies it. And that's what happened to my brain that morning. I still remember it. I was thinking about the, the line of Pete Hayes, um, Tasmanian like Newfoundland or Newfoundland like Tasmania is a psychological sink through which the mainland pours its ills. And thinking about Tasmania, it's the scapegoat, right? It's the scapegoat for the convicts, a scapegoat for just um, wiping out the Aboriginal population. Newfoundland, same thing, right? The Bay Autucks wiped out. Um, I grew up on the mainland where we, you know, my father was, now I'd call him a racist, but, you know, he, he was the the best at telling Newfie jokes, right? And <laughs> so, you know, you realize that Newfoundland had become the butt of the mainland jokes, just like Tasmania does of Australia. And in Tasmanian, it's the two-headed Tassie jokes. So it was that that cultural cringe is what they call it in Tasmania. And it, it's, um, even in Australia, they call it um, against the Europe and the, the central um, that's such a great term cultural cultural cringe, cringe I know. <laughs> and in newfoundland and i'd read you know colony of unrequited dreams and baltimore's mansion by wayne johnston and a lot of those novels that talked about how you know the the, the inferiority complex that newfoundlanders felt against the rest of canada because they weren't accepted into confederation um, as equal partners it was sort of like okay we'll feel sorry for you and bring you in and what that does to your psyche and yet the richness of these stories you know 30 50 years later the generational change and how you grow up with it and be, instead of being ashamed of those stories you become really proud of them and it has something to do with i think it has something to do with the island spirit right you become okay, it's, we're thought of as the other, well, you're the other, you know, you all want to come here and, uh, you know, spend your summers here and, and revel in our, um, our culture and uh, the Newfoundland stories and hospitality. But, you know, there's something really special here, right? And, and uh, maybe we should keep it a secret because we don't want everybody to come. <laughs> and so, you know, you end up as an artist and a storyteller telling these stories and finding the richness in them and the inspiration in them so that it becomes a cultural confidence. And um, so I love that line from cultural cringe to cultural confidence, I think is where both islands have taken their, um, your, you know, that, that sense of identity and made it into something so incredibly powerful that it's the envy of mainland Australia and the envy of mainland Canada. Before we go to chat about the individual art production, maybe, uh, tell me about Newfoundland. What was that like, that leg of the research? 
by the time I got back from Tasmania, I was so homesick. Um, my plan had been to stay a year in Tasmania. I was there for 10 months and then to come and spend a year in Newfoundland. But by the time I got home to PEI, I, I couldn't, it was really hard to leave. <laughs> so I did six week stints, uh, one in, in um, the winter and one in the fall and um, both times. And um, I, again, felt so at home. The hospitality, of course, of Newfoundlanders is, is so um, famous. And so you're so welcoming and open. And to talk about the kinds of things that I wanted to talk about, about story and about how you engage with your place in making your art, um, people were really open to doing that. And uh, I just felt so incredibly lucky that the generosity was sh shining through um, for me. And uh, it, it came through in, in the writing and, and the poetry that I was able actually to write. But of course, my favorite novels anyway, were the Newfoundland novels. And I just loved being there right after I read all of these wonderful stories about Newfoundland, just being there in the middle of them. And uh, feeling really, really fortunate to, and, and knowing the place because of the literature and the art that I had experienced. I still can't believe you agreed to come with me to Fogo Island <laughs> in February. <laughs> that was a memorable trip. <laughs> with uh, making the ferry with 30 seconds to spare, it was like we came over the hill and the ferry was just about ready and we just flew through and made that leap right you know that's how it felt but we really did have and blizzards what blizzards <laughs> <laughs> tell me about yeah. those conversations about art um let's start with newfoundland yes oh i got to interview people like michael for instance, he came in and he was so generous with his time and, and he's done a lot of thinking about islandness and how it affects his, um, his uh, writing and the stories that he's been able to collect over the years. And he comes from a family of storytellers. And so he, it's just a natural thing for him to engage with this place. Um, Wayne Johnston, he was one that I tried and tried and tried to get an interview with on the fourth time. Finally, it happened and I got him to come. Um, it was different reasons each time that uh, we, we weren't able to connect to do the interview. But he, um, my friend Heather Gajou, who was teaching English, first, uh, first year English class at uh, Memorial that fall, and uh, she was teaching the Divine Ryans. And I said, Heather... Wayne Johnston is going to be in town. Do you suppose I could bring him into your class and I could interview him in front of your class and then they could talk to him afterwards? And she said, of course. All right. And it was the most amazing experience. And so I got to talk to him and he couldn't back out then because he had an audience of, you know, like 25 people. Uh, he was great. And he was, again, so generous with his time. Um, Lisa Moore spoke with her in a coffee shop, a couple of other people, you know, that I think it's Coffee Matters, which is up by the old Newfoundland, Hotel Newfoundland. It was just a wonderful spot. I think I interviewed three or four people there. Um, I then um, spent time on Fogo Island and um, getting to talk to the great Winston Osmond about Winston and his wife Linda about there are um, but a jack of all trades he just can turn his hand to anything and he makes stuff out of nothing um, plus he's you know the 
I don't know if he's the unofficial mayor of Fogo Island, but you know, he, he's just, he does everything. He's, he's just, and, and Linda as well. And um, there, his art is just, it captures faces and stories and landscape that um, in a way that is really real. And, and it really, I find it very emotional looking at his pieces. Um, same with Adam Young, um, just down the street down the road on, on, uh, in Bard, Bard, Bard Islands, I guess, Bard, <laughs> yep, Bard Islands. and, um, the, the, yeah, Bar, yeah, they're really close, uh, you know, geographically and his stuff is so whimsical and yet he takes my favorite pieces as, as his, uh, the stages walking through the ocean because he said, you know, we here have to um, feel that in order to survive, you have to see the, the good side of things because otherwise you just curl up and die. And so he had this amazing, uh, these paintings that he does of the, the stages having fun and waking up in the night and going for walks and then coming back. And, and uh, it's just, you know, personifying things around him and the wind and what it's like being, on Fogo Island where it's so windy all the time and what that does to the colors of the sky. And, and I, I was very inspired by his, his paintings as well. When you talk to those artists, how conscious were they that they are artists, writers on an island? And what did that do to their art? I think they were very conscious of it. Um, you know, when I undertook the project, I was worried that talking to them about it might change their art, but it didn't, right? I couldn't imagine, you know, why would I think that I would have such power or control over that? <laughs> they were doing what they were doing anyway. And um, I think that being on an island for them, well, first of all, there's the the um, the practicalities of it, living in a place that is much cheaper to live. You don't have to spend huge bucks on a studio space. You have access to um, gallery space and, and publishers and um, music. I, I love talking to musicians as well. Uh, didn't do as talk to as many musicians as I'd hoped, but it was mostly visual arts and, and writers. Um, they all used their landscape and a lot of it had to do with containment. Um, some of it, sure, engaged with the sea and the edge, but there was a sense of either containment or huge horizons. And um, because on an island, if you're at the edge, that's what you see, unless you see another blot over there, another island, you're still, uh, you have a horizon in front of you. And so I think that some people use that horizon as a sense of um, um, inspiration, right? It becomes a metaphor for creativity and or the unknown or those kinds of things um david wheel calls them thin places where you're more in touch with the heavens and and so what happens then to your inspiration it opens up um and they also use stories and so many of the stories are because they live on an island and um whether it's shipwrecks or um hurricanes or snowstorms, all of those things that happen because and happen so much more intensely because we're on an island. They call it articulation by compression or the ABCs. I like to call it the ABCs of island living. And it's because you're just so 
unbounded, that everything is more intensified, more sharp, more distilled. And um, it shows through in the kind of art that they make. And yeah, I think they were quite, quite conscious of it and, and using it as well. Did that, did you find the same thing on Tasmania? Very and much did it, so. did it show differently? In Tasmania, um, not really. They still use the stories. They still use the landscape. But there are people, and it's similar to Newfoundland too, that live in the middle. And they're far, far from the ocean. They don't engage with the ocean, which is what you might think would be the defining nature of islandness or the defining feature of islandness. Um, but again, there's the light that's different because it's different on an island. And so the painters talk about that, um, even if they're in the middle of the um, island and they see um, things that inspire them, it's through the light that might be different or the stories are still there. And of course, my favorite question to ask uh, my interviewees was, when were you first aware that you lived on an island? And they go, oh, that's a good question. And they hadn't thought of it before. And uh, most of them said, when I had to leave. And so even if you're in the middle of an island and you're not engaging with the ocean, you still have to leave at some point and you realize what a big deal it is to have to leave. Both of these islands, big islands, Tasmania and Newfoundland, also have islands off of them. And so I was really lucky, as you mentioned, coming to Fogo Island and getting to spend some time there. So the big island becomes the mainland. In Tasmania, I was very fortunate to get to go to Bruni Island several times and um, interview um, a few art, couple of artists who lived there. Sometimes they were year-round residents or they um, were part-time and just vacation there or weekended there or whatever. They had a shack, as they call it in, in Tasmania. And uh, so then, therefore, the Tasmania becomes the, the mainland. And so it's a different sense of um, islandness that you get when you're a smaller island off of a big island or an island off an island off an island. And then it starts, you start to think, okay, how small an island do you need? <laughs> right? I see that on the West Coast, especially the, you know, the Gulf Islands off of Vancouver Island, and you have to take two or three ferries to get home. And and uh, it's okay, what is it about the fact that you need to be that much removed from the mainland before you feel that you can really just be, right? What is it about your psychological makeup, about your hardiness, um, your ingenuity, your creativity, all of those things. And, and I love the way Zita Cobb talks about it when you're on one of these islands, you're stripped bare, right? She talks about the little Fogo Islands and, and how when you go there, you become it's more real, right? You have no artifice. You're just there and you have to survive and there's nothing, right, that else that, that's important. And so as an artist, I think if you can tap into that, you are really, really fortunate. There's another similarity between Fog Island and Bruni Island, actually. They both picked arts as sort of a basis of revitalization basis of renewal uh, and it was through very strong will and resources of particular individuals tell me a little bit about that well of course fogo island and zita cobb and her Shorefast foundation and the fogo island arts corp and the fogo island in um, the residencies that she um, that the 
corporation offers that bring international artists to Vogel Island to create art. I think it's an amazing opportunity. I also had the opportunity to go to Tilting and be in one of the small tracks studios for a month when I was there and uh, just enjoyed it immensely. And that's um, when I got to really feel that I you know, being on a tiny island like that was very inspirational for me, as well as for when I was actually still doing my research. Bruni Island, too, um, they have a, a wonderful um, gallery space at Dens Point and offer some uh, residencies there. And it's because I think that they become a little enclave of artists from um the mainland Tasmania there, that's the impetus behind it. And then there would be a few individuals that would get it going. The, the most famous writer from Tasmania is Richard Flanagan. He won the Booker Prize a few years ago. He has a shack on Bruni Island and Pete has a shack on Bruni Island and um, Victoria King and John Cameron and my friend, Michelle Bolter, who is a fabulous uh, painter of ocean. And actually she has, roots to Prince Edward Island, the connection to uh, Victoria by the sea, Prince Edward Island. Her father, Charlie Bolter, was from there and uh, ended up in Australia, met Mache's mom, who was from Alberta, I believe, and they made a home and, and a life down there. And so I got to meet Mache and hang out with her family and see her art and paintings and uh, get to interview her too. So yeah, they become enclaves and then they realize, hmm, there's something about this place that's very attractive and let's bring our, you know, let's see if we can use this as a way of engaging um, with other artists from around the world. Anything I should have asked you and I didn't? Oh boy, that's a funny question. <laughs> um, hi. The answer can be no. No, I don't think so. I think, <laughs> I mean, art, island art and island writing has been going on forever, right? You think of the Iliad, the Odyssey, and, and, the, the travel, of course, um, these novels and stories of um, maturing, of overcoming obstacles usually mean that somebody has to go away and then come home again. And the quintessential one is the island hopping around Greece and, and um, the Odyssey. And then you get the shipwreck, shipwreck stories. So those have spawned a whole thing called Robinson ads after Robinson Crusoe. And so what happens when you're shipwrecked on an island and you have to make do? Um, I think that uh, it's been with us. It's part of our psyche. It's part of our um, civilization that our Western civilization anyway. And I'm very aware that there are other ways of living on islands than just the fact that, uh, you know, our Western idea of islandness and thinking of Epili Hawafa, where the ocean was just, it, it you know, islands were just little dots in a, a, a sea that were connected by this, vast landscape of water and so I think their sense of islandness and art is very different from ours and we have to be very cognizant of the fact that this is not just one way of talking and one way of thinking same with indigenous um, art and islands um, there are I loved in um, in Australia learning about how everything was connected under the sea that an island it just was a little 
blip, you know, goes above the water, but everything's connected under the sea. So it's not that islands are differentiated at all. They're connected below. So it's, it's about boundedness and connectedness and all of those things. And you can't just be one thing. That was Dr. Lori Brinklow from the Institute of Island Studies at University of Prince Edward Island on Canada's Atlantic coast. Thank you for listening to Otok, a podcast about and for islanders and islands. There are many ways to help us make Otok podcast even better. Leave a comment and leave a rating on your favorite podcasting app. Go to otokpodcast.com. That's O-T-O-K-podcast.com. And leave us a comment, suggest a guest. It can be you. Or, if you're so inclined, you can support the show financially through voluntary subscriptions. I'm going to leave you with Michael Mooney's I Guess You Planned It That Way. Michael is a Prince Edward Island musician and Loris partner. I am Boyan Fierst. Enjoy and talk to you soon. You stood me alone in my hand, said you liked it that way. Now I'm your broken man, could you have planned that way? I'm taking it hard. Fizzle.